This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. With the big CARP mayoral debate coming up tomorrow in a special edition of Fight Back, I wanted to check in on some grassroots issues in various neighborhoods that are, or at least should be, election issues. And they're all about basic services. Now, I just saw a report on extremely sluggish snow clearing after the big snowstorm last January, and we're headed to another January. And I remember in my neighborhood in Ward 12, it took more than a month for snowplows to get to some of the streets. Uh, the counselor there, Josh Matlow, said he had an avalanche of complaints. At King and Strong, right here in our area, right now, residents are complaining about a terrible stench. Not for the first time. This kind of happens a lot. It's overflow sewage. Is anybody trying to do anything about it? Well, who knows? And uh, Toronto approved the clearing of all downtown sidewalks last winter. But what was promised didn't really materialize, even though the city awarded rich contracts for that work in late 2021. So those overflowing litter bins that we talked about weeks ago, also supposed to be looked after by contractors. John Tory told me on this show that that situation would be remedied after the contracts were checked. Well, as of today, Councillor Mike Cole says there's been no progress or improvement. Oh, and by the way, <laughs> lest I not talk about the total lack of coordination for construction in this neighborhood, lately when I go home, the streets are closed such that the only way to go north is to make an illegal turn or a U-turn which I think is sort of legal. <laughs> but anyway, why can't basic things get done? And people out there, I know you're all over the place. What is bugging you in your neighborhood that isn't getting done? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Let's bring in Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, Lauren O'Neill, Senior News Editor of Blog TO, and Councillor Joe Mahevic, now in Spadina, Fort York, uh, until the election. And he used to be my councillor up in St. Paul's. Hello, everyone. Hi, Hi. Hello, everyone. Okay, Joe, let's start with you. What's your assessment of the state of getting basics done in the city? Well, I think we've all experienced it. You know, I've experienced it in my home, which is frankly not too far, unless you've moved, uh, Libby, from uh, your house. Um, I've experienced it in downtown. Yes, we are getting complaints about the sewage uh, in the Kingstron area. So there is truth to, of course, there's truth to, to all of that. There, there has been a decline. My, my interest is to try to go a little bit upriver and say, okay, what's, what's, what are the big picture issues that are happening that are driving some of this? And I, I think there's... Three, maybe four. Uh, one, I think, is development, especially in the downtown, but also at key nodes. Development, Toronto's booming with the development on the private sector side. And that's pushing us here and pushing us there. And frankly, you know, it is very hard. No one likes to live through renovations, either in their home or in the public realm. And I think that's a big thing of what we're seeing, especially in the downtown area and especially in the King Strawn area. That, that is in my uh, current ward. It's, it's happening and that's uh, causing a lot of disruption. The second thing that I think is happening is, is we're in a kind of a post COVID getting back to business. A lot of folks were pulled from the parks department, libraries, social services to work on COVID. 
And they, some of them then retired. And so staff, uh, in the city, broad city public service, you know, and we're, we're talking several tens of thousands of people. 40,000 people. 40,000 yeah. people, Joe. And I think with 40,000 people, um, we should be able to get things done. No, absolutely. Um, and so, but again, you know, why isn't it happening? And I, I think some of it is post COVID realignment, people getting back to their regular, regular duties. A third thing that I think, and I think this is the big elephant in the room is city finances. The city has, um, lost a lot of people and it can't afford to rehire the positions that are left vacated because of the debt. Uh, and the deficit that has come as a result of uh, working uh, around COVID. TTC, for example, Karen was the chair of TTC. They're losing about a million dollars a day. So people, department heads, directors, general managers saying, no, let's put a freeze on hiring. And at the end of the day, that is causing all kinds of trouble uh, down the line because these frontline services are not happening. You That's know, what I think is happening. Be- before I move on to Karen, and Karen, you tell me what you think of this. About a week ago, I checked with Brad Ross, and I said, how many vacancies are there, and how big a problem is it? And he said there were about 12% vacancies at the city, and that was absolutely normal, that at any given time, there are about 12% vacancies in the city. So uh, maybe not the dire shortage of workers that we've been hearing about. Karen, what's your take? Well, I, I do think that, um, and hey, Councilor Mahavik, how are you? Nice to have hey, you on the panel. Yeah, likewise, Karen. Nice to hear your um, voice. I, I think that uh, Councilor Mahavik has, has a point in terms of the post-COVID realignment. And, um, you know, I think that there has been a reticence to, to require people to come back into the office. But all the jobs that we're talking about require collaboration and coordination and cooperation. So especially for construction projects, uh, street projects, you know, communicating with the TTC, with other departments, the parks department, you know, even the boulevard on University Avenue. I don't know what happened there. That used to be a spectacular boulevard. And now it's full of weeds. It's overgrown. In my neighborhood, I've had, you know, I, I go to the local tennis club. It's a city club. We permit it out. There's been a court down for the entire summer because there's a water problem that we can't get anybody in the city to respond to. And the councillors no help either. And so there's just a general frustration, and it seems seemingly a malaise around, oh, it's not my problem, or, you know, I've pushed this email off, or it, there's no accountability for actually making sure that the city is running well. And I know David likes to say that, you know, we're, you know, the city is, that Toronto was a city run well. But we're not. And nobody's being accountable for that. And it, and it's starting to show in the front line. You know what, Karen? I think malaise is the perfect word to describe this, Lauren. Yeah, malaise and I guess apathy. Uh, I, I think that we used to be a city that was run well at one point. But um, as the two panelists are just saying, there are so many things that aren't being done. Um, you mentioned the smell at King and Strawn. So um, I lived in Liberty Village for about 10 years before I moved to like the Trinity Bellwoods area and just down the street. Um, this is this smell has been a problem for a long time. I know, I know. Time. And now they've just put four new massive condo buildings up at the corner of East Liberty and Strawn. And that, I mean, it makes sense that obviously the sewage is going to be increased, the output. And so I actually uh, ride my bike by there a lot. There are people who have put black garbage bags around the green methane vents. I'm not, I don't think it does anything because I don't think that's the only source, but people are getting so frustrated that there are black garbage bags taped with duct tape around these vents because <laughs> the smell is so gross. And it's like, can, it would just be so nice just to see any sort of action taken towards it as opposed to, you know, constant construction everywhere that doesn't seem to do anything because it just keeps coming back. I mean, so much streetcar track replacement, like, uh, and it just, it's just very frustrating right now for everyone in the city. I think it's starting to show like Karen. Joe, have you asked about a permanent solution to this problem? This is the one at Strong and King? Yeah. Yeah. So, so I do know that uh, it is in in my ward. We've uh, obviously been inquiring with the water. This is a water issue. Uh, and the water department is uh, basically they're cutting off this line and that line, and they're trying to identify the the source of it. The current state of the issue is they themselves do not know where this smell is coming from, but they are they tell me that they are actively investigating it, and 
And so I'm waiting for a report back on what they have found. I mean, these, these issues, all of these issues, they're, they are complicated. And Libby, I, I live just off of St. Clair. Yeah. And you may remember, oh boy, now it's 15 years ago yep. when uh, TTC needed to replace the track, just like they're replacing what, what they're doing on colleges. They're very simply replacing the track. But then TTC says, I need to replace the track. And then the water people say, say yep. okay, we yep. want to replace the sewers and we want to replace the water. Then Enbridge comes in and says, okay, we want to replace our infrastructure. That's all underground. And the hydro people come in and say, we want to underground our utilities uh, as well. And then a, a six-month, one-year project becomes a four-year project, and it just drives everyone crazy. However, you know what these things do? Uh, I mean, I, I don't want to <laughs> not say that there's a malaise, but I'm, I am saying that, that these kinds of complicated infrastructure projects, at least that those pieces of it, of what we're talking about, um, they take time. And, and, you know, we need to be a little bit patient with those things. No one likes living through uh, public sector uh, renovations. But at the end of the day, like St. Clair right now is doing really, really well. It is. That was because we put in the infrastructure really strongly 15 years ago. So water's working, sewers are working, electricity is working. There's, it's a beautiful street and people are coming out. And that's, maybe that's part of the cost of living in the big smoke. It's just that the construction pain is part of uh, building a better future. Well, I I will grant that because we all lived through the never-ending St. Clair streetcar right-of-way. Uh, Joe was my counselor. He lives close by. And uh, I can't even, I don't remember the number of businesses that went under then, but it was, I don't know, 60, 70. And now the area is pretty well thriving. And I mean, the same thing is happening on Eglinton right now. Lots of businesses are closing because of the construction there. But... Oh, we can talk to Karen about that. Yeah. <laughs> Karen? Oh, no, sorry. Yeah, just when you talk about Eglinton and Young and Eglinton and construction, that's what my my reaction. It's a physical reaction. <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> <living there. laughs> it's just a nightmare. It's just a nightmare. And then, you know, I understand that the Crosstown is going to open, but not stop at Eglinton. And uh, at Eglinton Station, because there's a complication. And, uh, you know, Joe, I think you'll appreciate this, as I do. Um, and I, I don't like to be smug on these things. But, you know, there was a real um, a real pushing down on the TTC that they couldn't manage projects very well. And MetroLink is going to come in and help us save the day. And the reality is, these, to your point, these construction projects are complicated. And not surprisingly, MetroLink has found that they've run into a problem and they've delayed the project and we don't know when it's going to be completed. And it is complicated. I think the hard part is that the lack of communication uh, leaves people wondering if anyone's actually in charge. Right. And once you start to lose confidence that, there's, that there actually is a plan, then you become cynical. And, and I think that's where we're headed, is that nobody actually believes that there's a plan for anything. And these things just seem to be random, but they're, but they're so annoying and they're causing congestion. It's causing frustration. Nobody knows what's Nobody can seem to explain how things work or if they're working. And, and that's what feeds into the cynicism around whether the city functions or not. Well, yeah, I, w- I would absolutely agree with you. And, and here's a question that I have, and it, it has something to do with strong mayor power. So uh, we have 40,000 municipal employees, and I keep saying, I don't believe that they've all been doing the full-time jobs that they've been paid for in full throughout the pandemic, because if they had been, we wouldn't be in this situation. Just real simple. They're very good, you know? Um, so, uh, and, and some of the mayoral candidates, not on the record, but when we talk sort of off mic, say, well, I said, how are you going to get this done? How? And they say, well, well, maybe there are some senior civil servants that have to be replaced and the strong mayor will have more power to do that. Joe, do you think that that is a possible solution for some of the, you know, gridlock? I don't mean traffic. Well, I, I mean, they, you know, I haven't done performance reviews of uh, the senior civil service and maybe that's uh, that's a part of it. Uh, I do think, as, as Karen was saying, that accountability needs to be, uh, the uh, accountability piece needs to be up. And that's both for in-house and 
outhouse. So the things that we contract out. So we contract out garbage, we contract out tree repair, tree removals, and so on. And, you know, when you do a, a home and you sign the contract with the contractor who's going to say, oh, I'll do this in six months, and I have this problem with my next-door neighbor who's, like, this is a contract that was going to be done in one year, and it's still taking three years to get done. So there's also an accountability on the contracts that we let out for vital pieces of uh, uh, maintenance uh, on city facilities. So there's all kinds of accountability mechanisms that we need to put in place to make sure, yes, that people people are doing our job. But I think at the end of the day, uh, we're also going to find that uh, in some areas, tree removal, for example, being one, uh, is uh, that that we are short-staffed. Uh, you know, you make a very good point about contracts, and this is something that really struck me. And I was talking to another city councillor, and I was talking about various problems. You know, uh, what about contractors who leave their equipment, close lanes of traffic, and then take off for a while? Uh, and th- the answer was something like, I'm very disappointed in some of our contractors. And I'm thinking, excuse me, the city is paying big bucks. And the suggestion from the councillor seemed to be that they, you needed a new session of council to hold the, counts, the, the, the contractors accountable for what's in the contract, that you can't not pay them. Uh, I mean, I completely don't get that. If somebody uh, is, if a contractor is doing work in my home and doesn't do the work, I don't pay. Then they do the work. <laughs> it's amazing, actually, how they, the work gets done. It's amazing how that works. Uh, um, Karen, I mean... Yeah, for sure, but, you know, I think part of it, and everyone's kind of dancing around it, but part of it is they have to go back to work. They have to go back to the office. And there's this reticence to mandate people to return, and I understand that it's difficult. I do. I have, you know, I have my own HR issues that I'm managing here at the village, this whole idea that you can just work from home when the actual focus of your job is to make sure things get done in conjunction with other departments requires you to be back working with those other departments. And so at some point, there has to be a push to go back to return to the office so that some of these basic coordinating can get done. Yeah, I, I, that's another thing that I frankly don't get. I mean, there's a, a big labor shortage generally, so people are afraid to mandate what has to be mandated <laughs> but i don't think the job that is go- in the office. yeah it, that's the job that's your job <laughs> uh um you know you don't you don't want to go back to work well maybe you need a different job right there are or- many 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 jobs available for people out there that can work remotely if they so choose um yeah, I definitely agree that people who are working for the city who need to coordinate with different departments should probably be in the office. And if it's such a big deal that they really just don't want to go back in, they can't work from there, like, yeah, look for another job and then make an opening for someone else to take one of those highly paid, really important positions because, you know, things need to get done. And and it sucks for some people having to go back to work, get back to the office after years of working from home. Like, I mean, I like being back at the office, but some people aren't super keen, but just get another job. I'm seeing it happen all over the place. Lots of people I know my age are like, I'm not going back to the office. I'm going to work for this firm instead. I'm going to work remotely. And so, yeah, people at the city could simply do the same thing and and allow more. Yeah, yeah, but there's a reluctance to tell them what to do. I don't know. Joe, what is it? it Is it not also changing work patterns? The ability... I have have two daughters and they're they're white-collar jobs and one of the work for a Toronto company uh, from Austin, Texas, because she wanted to be there in the music scene, and she could do it. And she was, she says, look, I do more work, I put in more hours, et cetera, et cetera, because I can work remotely. You know, if you're a white-collar person and you are working, you used to work in an office, uh, the whole, it's not just the public sector, the private sector, too, is rethinking Bell Canada, Rogers, all the big players are rethinking the percentage that you have to be in the office for all the collaborative reasons and the percentage that you can be out of the office and working from home in order to focus uh, on, uh, say, detail work that you're doing individually. I think really where the problem for the city is not so much on the in-office, out-of-office. It's the blue-collar stuff. It's the garbage pickup. It's the street cleaning. It's the tree pruning. It's the tree removal. 
And that's all uh, blue collar stuff. And of course, they need to be present. And they have to be present, frankly, every day of the week or certainly Monday to Friday to get those kinds of things done. But I think the white collar stuff, I'm not sure really it's germane to the point of, uh, it, you know, the malaise dep- that, uh, that we, we, and we, we are going to have to have a new deal. Returning to work, fi- uh, white collar people are not going to go back to work five days a week. Maybe three days, maybe four. I don't know what the magic answer is, but it's not going to be five days. That's, that's the new reality post COVID. And with all the internet uh, capabilities that we have. Well, yeah, that's, that was a whole other issue. I want to take a couple of calls is that really, uh, you know, it's one thing to say, uh, you can work from home, but not every system is up to it. Sorry. Some companies have great systems and yes, you really can do everything and it depends on your job and others don't. And government, I think, is one of the areas where they didn't. At least not this one. <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's take a couple of calls. Margaret's been waiting patiently in Etobicoke. Hi, Margaret. Hi, how are all of you doing today? Fine, how are you? We're, we're good. Okay, I'm a blind person. I use the Wheeltrans system here in Toronto, and the big problem we're having right now is the what they call the family of services. The idea is it's supposed to give people a choice, you know, about how they want to travel, whether they feel safer traveling from door to door in a vehicle or whether they want to be able to use the conventional TT system, TTC system, which is buses and that kind of thing. But here's the problem. A lot of people don't get that choice. A lot of people get told, no, you can only have the door to door at this time of the day or that time of the day. But you know what? If you have construction outside, just like you guys were talking about, and you're a blind person trying to find your bus or whatever it is, you can't do it because a lot of roads and that are covered. It's the same with the winter. And then if you take um, a subway somewhere and then get met by a wheel trans vehicle and you're told to look for a blue deco and you don't have the vision, but yet you go to where you're told to go and a driver misses you, you're declared a no-show and you may have to wait two or three hours to get picked up. Um, and, and, and to me, I think people, number one, should have the choice of what vehicle they want. And number two, I don't know how, how, what the answer is to coordinate the rest of the stuff. But I mean, it's, it's a very frustrating program to use. And I'd appreciate it if somebody out there would kind of look into that. Thank you. Thank you very much for that, Margaret and Etobicoke. And, uh, I think that, you know, problems with wheel trends also predate COVID. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah definitely. Karen probably could speak to this best as the former chair of, of Wheeltrans, but in my, certainly in my political career, regular, regular complaints on, on uh, the nature of wheelchair, uh, the wheelchair service. And it's everything from scheduling to being uh, late uh, to, um, to not, sometimes not coming at all. Uh, yes, that's a service that needs to be carefully looked at. That's absolutely correct. I'm looking at the clock. We're getting close to the end. So uh, I, I hope that you all fulfilled the, the assignment I gave out. And that is we have the mayoral debate tomorrow with it's the first of only two such debates with Mayor John Tory, with Gil Penulosa, who is considered the front runner and a, a, a two other challengers, no, three other challengers. So what do you think is the key question to ask in that debate? Karen? Oh, well, I would ask Mayor Tory very directly. You know, in the past, you've always held property tax increases to the rate of inflation. What is your new plan for tax increases? Okay. Joe? I would ask, what are the bucket of services that you are offering as a mayor and as a councillor, as council, and are you willing to have a, the honest conversation with the, with the residents of Toronto saying, and this is the cost, and this is what it's going to cost you? That's the debate. It's around the services and the money to pay for it. Lauren? I would like to hear the candidates answer the question of why why is it worth for people under 40 to stay in Toronto right now when we can't buy homes? What is it that we should stay here for? What can we look forward to down the line that's going to prevent us from moving to Calgary and paying $400,000 for a house that's 16 1.6 million in Toronto. But you'd have to live in Calgary. Exactly, which should suck, yeah. But I mean, or the outskirts, you know, I think I'm just seeing more and more people leaving all the time due to house prices. So I know affordability is a huge issue we talk about all the time, but like, 
I don't see any change. So when can we expect this problem to actually be resolved? Like within years, like I need a timeline before, you know, I just dip and buy a house somewhere else. Okay, I'm sorry. I have an answer to your timeline, <laughs> but it's not a good one. Know, it's not I one know. you're not that you are going <laughs> to like. I know. Um, we do have two minutes left. Uh, so it it looks like it's coming down to money. Uh, John Tory, of course, he's positioning himself, and he does have a track record of getting money out of the other levels of government. And Gil Penulosa, who wants to offer more. He also says the same thing. His plan is to get money from the province and, and the federal government. Is that like a, a never ending spigot of cash? Can, can Toronto just keep relying on that? We have a huge hole, which is actually illegal. Karen. Oh, Joe, you were going to say something? Go ahead. Joe, go ahead. Joe, go ahead. Well, we've had perennial debates on what we call revenue tools. And you cannot run a big city like Toronto only on the property tax and the land transfer tax. We need another set of revenue tools. And it could be a road toll that they finally let us do. It could be an HST, one, one penny on the HST. It could be 1% on the income tax. We need another revenue source. Big cities are big, complex beasts that basically handle the day-to-day stuff that cities need to provide services for, and you can't do it just on the property tax base. Otherwise, you're looking at a property tax increase that is way too big. Karen? Yeah, you know, the thing about um, revenue tools is that, unlike property taxes, property taxes are flat. They come in every year, year after year, whether the economy is going well or not. Land transfer tax has basically been a boon for the city over the last, 10, 15 years, 12 years since it was implemented. But the reality is with the housing cratering, with the housing sector or the, the um, real estate sector taking a bit of a downturn, the city's not going to be able to rely on that in, in, in infusion of cash in the way it has in the past, which does create a pressure. The, the city, the province should definitely fund transit more than they do. And with the gas tax revenue, being what they are, there is some ability for the province to fund and come up with a better deal for how transit's funded in Toronto because the reality is the TTC is going to be facing a revenue shortage for probably the next five years. And so that stabilizing that would help significantly. Lauren, last word to you. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that Tori has done well is is solicit um, investments from private industries like the film industry and the tech industry. They're opening up a lot of offices here. They're spending a lot of money here. Offices what? that nobody wants to go to work yeah. in. But anyway, <laughs> but, go ahead. You know, the Sorry. film industry movies, you know, they're bringing a lot of, uh, you know, money here to spend in the city and to generate revenue. I would just love to see a link at one point. If, if he could draw a link or someone could draw a link between this money that's coming in, billions of dollars coming into Toronto from tech and, and film. What is that going towards? Could any of that be used towards enhancing our city services and making our streets less gross? You know, for all of the famous Hollywood people that come here, and, and or more importantly, the people who live here. Okay. Uh, well, I hope that you'll all be listening tomorrow, and we'll see what they have to say about all of this. In the meantime, thank you so much, Joe Mehevic, Karen Stintz, and Lauren O'Neill. Thanks, Libby. Thank you very much for hosting us. This is great. Uh, okay. Uh, right now, we are going to take a break. And when we come back, okay, you thought the city services was bad? Well, uh, there's more information on what's going on in our emergency rooms. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We have more information on the crisis in Ontario hospital emergency rooms. A new report from Ontario Health finds that hospital stays in emergency departments increased by 15.8% in August compared to the year before, and the length of stay for patients who had to be admitted increased by nearly 50%. And so what does that mean for us and how do we improve the situation? I am now joined by Dr. Stephen Flindall, an emergency doctor in the GTA. Hi, Dr. Flindall. Thanks so much for being with us. Well, thanks for having me. Well, 
this is not a surprise. Uh, we've been seeing and hearing various metrics on, on emergency room weights. What do you find in your own hospital? Well, yeah, things are, are certainly getting worse month by month. Um, patients that are being admitted to the hospital are uh, having a significant impact on the emergency department because uh, the hospitals are full. The admitted patients are starting to stay in the emergency department and occupy our beds. Uh, that's been going on for a while. How much worse has it been getting? Uh, significantly worse. There's been days where I've come down uh, or gone in for a shift, and uh, basically every acute care bed we have in the department is occupied by an admitted patient. Um, so we're trying to uh, shoehorn patients into like really almost non-clinical areas to uh, to provide care. And uh, uh, what is the backup? Is the backup of what's called alternate level of care patients, that's patients who are waiting for a spot in a nursing home or a rehab, uh, or is it something else that's causing the backup lack of nurses or all of the above? I think it's all of the above, but, uh, you know, when you, I looked at the report and I went into the data, it actually looks like the uh, hospitals in Linz with the lowest, or sorry, with the highest number of alternate care patients are actually uh, the least impacted by the recent uh, surges. So their numbers have changed less than some areas with the uh, with lower occupancy rates by uh, ALC patients. And And why would that be? Uh, you know what? I'm not quite sure. You can't get it right from the, the raw data. There, there must be other factors going uh, going in. Um, maybe they're more efficient at uh, the patients that can be discharged, getting them out, and uh, getting uh, the patients up from the eMERGE. Um, you know, you, you can't see those answers just from raw data. And again, in your experience in your hospital, uh, do you have a, a thoughts on what would help alleviate the situation? Um, you know, I really don't. I, I the the fact that we're seeing so much high acuity illness coming in, and it's been quite striking to me how many how much of the new acuity is actually pediatric patients. I mean, clearly there is respiratory illness going around. Um, it may not be all COVID, but it's certainly all things that uh, just doing general precautions like masking, like vaccinations, uh, like sick time, they would all help the situation. And uh, just letting um, these illnesses uh, continue to, uh, to rise unfettered, I think, is, is not sustainable. Uh, we're heading into flu season, and I gather that it could be a bad one based on what's happening on the other side of the world. Yeah, yeah, we're seeing some uh, pretty bad numbers. This could be one of the worst flu seasons in quite some time. Uh, Australia's had a bad time, and that's usually our kind of marker of how, what the season's going to be like here. Not always. There's been some times where Australia's been badly affected, and we haven't, but usually it's a pretty reliable predictor. And would you say that uh, the worst situation, is it uh, right in the center of Toronto? Is it in the GTA or, or you know, the, the emergency rooms that we've seen closures in, a lot of them are, are outside their rural? Yeah, well, they, the worst numbers are definitely in uh, larger centers in Toronto uh, and the, the surrounding areas. Um, the interesting thing is, yes, the rural uh, closures uh, are definitely impacting things. And I think that's part of the reason you see larger centers being impacted, because where do those patients now go? They go to the larger centers. Also, the larger centers, like we, the biggest increase has been in the complexity of patients. And large centers like teaching hospitals, uh, downtown hospitals, they're the regional uh, centers for a lot of programs like strokes or trauma and that sort of thing. So they get funneled to these areas disproportionately. Um, I, I've find it interesting that none of the closures uh, have any sort of data captured on these studies. Like, I, I think they should all be um, captured as, like, failing, uh, failing standards, uh, but they're just taken right out. So, you know, those closures aren't even reflected in this data. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Uh, that, that, uh, that doesn't make it all that useful, does it? Well, I think it's useful in the fact that you see the, the burden that the uh, remaining emergency departments are fading, are, are seeing, um, because like I say, the, these patients are still there, but, and they have to go somewhere. So they go to the bigger departments, 
the bigger departments are getting disproportionately affected by the, uh, the the numbers and the complexity, and it's reflected in the length of stay and the inpatient beds and all, everything else. Uh, how big a problem is a shortage of nurses? It's a big problem. I mean, uh, you have, you know, inpatient bed closures at times, so wards can't accept any more patients. Um, the emergency department uh, generally is short uh, at least one or two nurses per shift, depending on what hospital you're at. And so it's ever increasingly difficult to process even the, the same volume, let alone increasing volumes or, in, or increasing complexity. And they've shown over and over again that admitted patients that have to stay in the eMERGE do worse than patients that are uh, actually admitted uh, to to a specialty ward because those nurses know exactly what they have to do with those patients. Emergency nurse uh, array of skills, but not necessarily the specialized skills that a lot of these patients need. Hmm. That's interesting as well. Uh, Dr. Flindall, what would you like to leave us with on this problem, huge problem? Um, I'd just like to leave us with the, the fact that, uh, you know, we're still seeing surging cases. I, I'm seeing disproportionate uh, increase in pediatric cases, and there's stuff we can do to, to help mitigate these things. I think bringing mass mandates in while we're seeing this rise and this uh, strain on the emergency department is definitely not an unreasonable thing to do. Um, I think the politicians have got to stop ignoring the problem and acknowledge it. I mean, uh, You've got uh, the Premier and the Minister of Health both saying there's not a problem, and clearly there is. I think this is going to force them to actually acknowledge the problem and maybe start dealing with it. Okay. Dr. Stephen Flindall, thank you so much for being with us. You're very welcome. Thank you. Bye-bye. We are going to take another break, and uh, something a little more fun uh, may hurt in the pocketbook. So ArriveCan, the app that a lot of us love to hate, it cost $54 million. Well, two small tech companies, well, they built something similar over the weekend. Uh, we'll talk about that when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. The government has made using the ArriveCan app optional, but that hasn't shut down the controversy over the program that so many Canadians love to hate. The government spent $54 million on it, and it was remarkably glitchy, at least at the beginning. And so why did it cost so much money? And did it really require that level of investment? Well, two tech companies spent Thanksgiving weekend creating their own version. The numbers, if you want to weigh in on this, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I am joined by Sheetal Jaitley, who is the founder and CEO of Tribal Scale. Hello, how are you? Thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me, Libby. How are you? Fine. So what made you do this? Why are you doing this? I, I, look, um, what happened was we, um, we we do a company stand-up every morning and we talk about what's in the news. And obviously us being in tech and being digital product builders, um, this news story came up that was in the Global Mail. And, you know, our, our tribe was kind of baffled at how much capital was spent on ArriveCan. Um, having used it. And so a couple of members of our tribe were, you know, started, started piping up saying, I bet you we could rebuild this in two days. And one thing led to another and a homegrown like hackathon started happening. And we said, Hey, let's, uh, let, let's, let's show the government that we could clone the app and, and show them that, Hey, this, these things can be done with, uh, with capital efficiency and productivity. And, uh, let's, let's, let's go to all levels of government with a positive message of, how we can help them do things smarter and a lot better. Uh, wouldn't you have been building on what was already done when there was nothing there to work from? Yeah, absolutely. So it's a lot easier, Libby, to clone an application that's already been built. But um, this is a very simple application. It's uh, it's more of an intake form. Uh, this doesn't require the level of strategy that a lot of digital products require when they're much more complex. Um, 
And, you know, I, he, he, having said that, I think like, look, it's a lot easier to clone it. And they're, you know, us saying, oh, yeah, we would have been able to work with the government and do it in 48 hours is not what we're saying at all. What we are saying is, hey, there's a magnitude of difference here. And there is a way for all, all levels of government to actually start working a lot smarter. And uh, as a tech community, um, a lot of people in the tech community are pretty baffled at how, how, how this can happen, especially especially with Canada being a place where the world comes to build their digital products. Um, we have amazing, not only tribal skill, we have amazing innovation digital firms in Canada that actually do this day in and day out for the world, for companies all around the world. Um, and for this to happen and our government to, to, to make, to spend this kind of money was something that we really baffled us. And we wanted to show them, hey, things can be done a lot more capital efficient and done in a more productive way. Um, and we, you know, we want to, we want to tell the government, Hey, we're here to help. And let's, uh, let's actually help you for free. Let's, let's, let's be the change we want to see in society. Uh, how much do you think it should have cost? Libby, to keep completely honest, we build far more complex apps than arrive can for less than a million bucks. Okay. So, uh, that's a, that's a big discrepancy. Let's take a call from Bridget in Toronto. Hi, Bridget. Hi, how are you, Libby? Fine, how are you? Good. Um, hope nobody I work with is listening to me right now. Anyway, um, when we talk about cost, I've worked in, in a few bureaucracies in my life, and um, it's really about the bureaucracy, because when you are trying to do something new and you're working in the government, you are things have to go past through many hands. It's many, there's many layers. It's very complex. Many approvals are happening. You're paying all of those people. It is very hard to be innovative in a bureaucracy, and I think that's what happened here. So when you have a small company, you can be more agile. So absolutely. This is just an example of the things that we pay way too much money for because we're developing these things within the confines of a bureaucracy. Okay, Bridget, thanks for that. I'm I'm wondering though, is this another example, uh, Sheetal, of you know? Uh, I remember was it last summer or the summer before uh, when some stairs had to be replaced in a park, and uh, the city contract was for sixty five thousand dollars, and then an enterprising guy went and and he did it. Uh, I th- think for five hundred bucks, and it wasn't exactly to the standard that the city would have needed, and there was just a, a stunt at the Dufferin subway station today where uh, they built a, 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 a streetcar, a bus lane that's temporary. They kind of kamikaze thing in the morning, but it's not how it would have been done. Uh, are, are you kind of, did you kind of do a tech version of that? Yeah. Um, Libby, I, we, we were able to build the app. I mean, even a lot of the authentication and privacy concerns that um, a lot of the critics are talking about um, we, we were able to like redo that, that aspect of it also. And we took a look at like how they're doing it. And it's, 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 it's not overly complicated. I think, like, I, I think, you know, we, the excuse of like, Hey, we've always done it this way. And this is just the way government is. And, um, there's not a smarter way to do things or a better way to do things. I think is getting old. I think, you know, we, we, we as a society and as citizens of uh, as citizens of Canada actually want to see change and want to want to see things being done in a more productive way. Um, Bridget just brought up a great point. Um, a lot of big companies that we work with do have bureaucracy and they struggle every day in their digital transformation of how they could be more agile and do things in a more lean way. Um, but at least they're trying and they're trying to change and they're trying to make that happen because it actually affects their bottom line. I think our government. Um, uh, you know, again, at all levels, as you just mentioned about the stairs, needs to really take a look at the bottom line and say, hey, this is actual money that is being taken out of our Canadians' pockets, and what can we do to do it in a more efficient way? Do you think that uh, whoever was involved in this uh, charged more because it was the government? I mean, I, I can't comment on that, but what I, what I think is this is, 
I go to every customer that I'm with and I come with a mindset of capital efficiency and productivity and whoever was involved in this project did not bring that to the table. I would be ashamed if my name was, our, our company name was tagged on to this price tag and that's what the output is. I would, I would be definitely ashamed of that. Okay, let's take a call from Bruce in Guelph. Hi, Bruce. Hi, Libby. Um, I think what's going to happen here, you'll find out eventually that there were some uh, high-flying ministers involved and probably got kickbacks in all the companies they owned or owned at arm's length. And then Trudeau's going to come out once they see this and say, okay, I'm sorry, it'll never happen again. A couple of ministers will resign. And some of these ministers, if you remember, I think it was, was it Bill Monroe that resigned a year or two ago, the federal finance okay, minister. Okay, Bruce, I'm going to cut you off because I don't want to libel anybody. Um, uh, uh, kickbacks and uh, apologies. Uh, uh, I don't think it's going to uh, get to the head at all. And again, we can't accuse people of things like that if we do not have uh, proof. So there you go. Uh, but definitely there is a government bureaucracy and and things take a long time and cost a lot of money. Um, Sheetal, just moving forward, we now have a, you know a lot of government workers who want to be working from home, and part of the issue with things getting done is that the systems are not quite up to it. Yeah, I mean, look, I think the whole work from home thing is really started to accelerate the digitization of what we do every day. And look, this is going to be a learning curve for everybody. Um, and, you know, we, we, we got to figure out how we could all work together. And like, actually, again, let's be more outcome focused and be more output focused on like what value we're going to bring to the citizens of Canada and how we can work backwards from there is like my advice on, on what we can do. And actually, I mean, being more proactive, Libby, um, uh, you know, we had the tech community at large, you know, messaging myself and, and, and others. And we, we, we said that, Hey, let's start something that's going to be super positive for the government. So, you know, I'm putting a call out there for all your listeners who are in the tech community. I'm starting the Canadian technology consortium, which is, you know, let's get a group of, of, of smart individuals together. Um, and let's put a call out to the government to say, Hey, any problems that you're having or any, any any obstacles you're facing in digital, come to us and let us give you free advice on how we could we could do things better moving forward. Yeah, um, I'm going to give the numbers out again. I think there are people who still want to comment on this, and this is uh, the Arrive Can app that a lot of people hated using, and it costs the government fifty four million dollars. And I'm talking to Sheetal. Jately, and he says his company can do similar things for under a million bucks. I say that is a very big deferential. The numbers to call, we do have a little time left. 416-360-0740. Toll free 1-866-740-4740. And let's go to Jim in Scarborough. Hi, Jim. Hi, Libby. Um, I've heard the conversations about this on numerous radio stations. And many of them have had app developers on. They're all comparing the $54 million price tag with the development of a single app. But nobody has clarified what was the $54 million for. Was it for maintaining the uh, system itself? Was it for the purchase of the servers to, to operate this? I know every app that I have on my phone has a developer. And if you have a problem... There's a developer available to solve that problem for you. Who maintained that side of it? And that might be where, along with what the young one woman said about the bureaucracy, there may be other costs that are not included. I'm critical of the government with the money that they're spending, but I'm also very critical of these developers coming on and saying, well, $54 million for an app is out of the reason. We can, we can build it for less than a million, but you don't know it the whole story, and nobody's looked into the whole story. Okay, Jim. Uh, Sheetal, do you have a response to that? I, I, absolutely, Jim. You bring up a great point. Um, there's maintenance costs that obviously go with digital products that, you know, support maintenance, hosting. Uh, Jim Messon, um, mentioned, you know, 
But you could do these things in a much more economical way. I think the magnitude of $54 million to say, hey, um, there's a form that the government put out, and it's an intake form, it, the maintenance cost of that compared to some of the banking apps we build or the healthcare apps we build is nowhere close um, to, to, to what the spend was. And so, look, uh, yeah, everything Jim said is correct. Um, but you, even if you go line item by line item of what needs to be done to maintain a digital product, uh, we are not anywhere close um, in the realm of what was spent here. Uh, yeah, and uh, you know, uh, the first few times I used the app, I don't recall that there was some kind of tech support to call if you had an issue with it. To be honest, you know, I know there there is. Um, look, I'm sure there was a team that was working on, you know, if the app crashed and stuff like that. There was bugs being reported that were continuously getting fixed and getting developed on. Um, you know, I'm I'm, I'm positive the government was. What had some maintenance um, support teams that were working on it, maybe not a phone call. However, you know, the price tag doesn't match what the output is. Okay. Uh, just a uh, last word from you, Sheetal. What would you like to leave us with on this? You know, I, I, I would like to leave us with this. Hey, this is not a gotcha moment for just a ride can. I think, um, as you said earlier, Libby, we all take a look at what government does and we kind of shake our head to it. And I think, you know, the tech community and the smart ingenuity of, of our community, especially in tech, wants to come with a positive solution to the table and help Canadians all across the country um, see capital efficiency from their government. And we want to be here to help. Okay. She told Jay. And, we, and we'll do it for free. Like <laughs> this, this, this is something the community wants to do um, for free to, to, to make life better and spend better for all of us. Okay, Sheetal Jaitley, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Bye-bye. Okay, uh, that's all the time we have for today. And remember, tomorrow we have a special edition of Fight Back. It is a CARP mayoral debate. We are going to have five candidates here, including the incumbent mayor, John Tory. And uh, it should be a very lively event. It's actually going to be live in Zoomer Hall with a live audience. So please join us one way or another. And that's all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.